Grab your Bible and turn with me to the little book of Jude. I am a planner. I like to have a plan. Anybody else crazy like me? You just you love plans. You got to have a plan. Yeah, I'm the type of person. I got my online calendar, right? And if something ain't on the calendar, guess what? It ain't happening. I got to have, thank you. I got to have it on the calendar. I also do this with lists. I make a lot of lists. I have a task list every day. And if something ain't on the task list, guess what? It ain't getting done. I got to plan. I got to be organized. I even go so far when I go on trips. I'm that annoying person that wants to have a plan. I went this summer with my family to Florida, uh, my extended family. There were 17 of us in one beach house, bless us. And uh, I was the guy who said, hey, what's the plan? When are we going to go out to eat? Which nights? Where are we going to eat? How much is it going to cost? When are we going to leave? When are we going to come back? What are we going to do next? And nobody liked that. But I need to have a plan, all right? And this morning, we are going to look at a plan, but not just any plan. This, my friends, is a battle plan, a battle plan for living out the Christian life in the midst of spiritual warfare. And we find this battle plan in the little book of Jude. This is our third week walking through this New Testament letter from Jude, the brother of Jesus. And we titled our series, The Battle Ready Life, because we saw that Jude wrote this letter to address a church that was under attack. False teachers had crept into the church and were changing the gospel message and leading people astray. So Jude challenged the believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Last week, we saw the way that Jude described these false teachers and the, the effect they were having on the church. We talked about our need to have a battle-ready defense. We have the responsibility to protect the truth of the gospel. And in today's passage, Jude now turns his attention to the faithful believers in the church, and he gives them a plan, a battle plan to protect their church, protect themselves, and protect one another. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this text verse by verse. And as we do, I'm going to give you three parts to Jude's battle plan. But let's start by reading our text in its entirety. Would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? <clears throat> this is Jude, verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Amen. You can be seated. Three parts, as I said, to this battle plan. Here's the first. Number one, know your enemy. Everyone knows one of the keys to winning a game or a competition, you got to know who you're up against. you got to know what their strategy is. When I was a student pastor, one of the big events that we did every year was an all-night laser tag lock-in. Did you ever have a lock-in back when you were in student ministry? Listen, I hated it. I hated it. It was a terrible idea. Here's why. First off, I don't miss sleep. 
Okay, I love sleep. It took me weeks to recover from these events, this nonsense. Second off, I had to spend most of the night keeping people from kissing their boyfriend or girlfriend or from eating all the food. And third off, I am just not that good at laser tag. Here's what would happen whenever you would enter the, I would, you'd enter the laser tag arena. You'd have a vest and you'd have your gun. And your lights are out. It's all serious. And your gun, your vest would light up either red or blue to show what team you're on. And you knew if you're on the red team and you saw a blue light, those are the people you shoot. That's your enemy. But here's what would happen. All of those pesky middle schoolers that were on the other team, they made a pact, a mutiny to go solely against me. So the moment I stepped into the game, I was just running for my life. I had this horde of people following me, and they were shooting me in the back, and I just would get in the corner and just ball up. Look, I knew my enemy because they would not leave me alone. (laughs) But that's Jude's first part of his battle plan. As Christians, we've got to be aware of who and what we're up against. Look at verse 17. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Jude, he's, he's shifting gears here with that but you. He's now speaking directly to the faithful believers in the church. And he says, hey, guys, you beloved, remember, remember what the apostles predicted. The apostles, those were the disciples and the apostle Paul, the people who had seen the resurrected Jesus, and they had predicted something. Here's what they predicted in verse 18. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. There's that phrase that we wrestled with a bit in Revelation. It's the phrase, in the last time. What does that mean? Well, we know we were established in Revelation. He's not talking about only the end of the world like we tend to think of it. But rather, the New Testament spoke of the entire time period between Christ's first and second coming as the last time. So the prophets predicted in the age in which we live, in this church age, there are going to be some troublemakers Some people that he calls scoffers, people who would mock the faith and mock the gospel and follow their ungodly passions. Now look at verse 19. He says, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. So Jude tells the church, he says, hey, remember what the apostles said. They said this is going to happen and here it is, it's happening. These are the guys I've been telling you about. And he describes these false teachers in three specific ways. First, they were causing divisions. They were splitting the church with their teaching. There was one group who was following them and one group who wasn't, and it was tearing apart the family of God. Second, he says they were worldly people. Their teaching wasn't biblical, and their lifestyle wasn't either. And third, this is the strongest rebuke. He says they were devoid of the Spirit. These people were not believers, even though they may have claimed to be. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is one of the defining marks of a true Christian, and these people were devoid of him. So Jude wrote these verses to help believers know who the enemy is. But I want to issue a word of caution this morning. I hesitate a little with this kind of battle language, because right now we live in a time where everyone is a little too battle-ready. We've all got our guns blazing, and there's so much angst out there right now. I mean, our world, they they want to divide us. Our culture wants to place us into groups based on our politics or our race or our beliefs or where we're from, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're in this group, then that other group's the enemy. And if you're in this group, then that group's the enemy. And this is what we see online all day. It's on TV. 
It's always those people who say this and do this, and they're ruining anything, everything. And they're the enemy, and we've got to destroy them. And this worldly mindset is coming to the church. Because there are some who get any whiff of someone who disagrees with their view or who is different than them, and they start labeling them enemies. And they want to destroy and eliminate and take them out. But let's hold up here a second. Let's acknowledge, as I hope we saw through 1 Peter, that this type of accusatory, divisive, uncharitable opposition towards brothers and sisters in Christ is not the way of Jesus. Jesus did have enemies. He had opponents, and at times he spoke quite direct and harshly to them. He did go into the temple and flip some tables with a whip. But we also know that Jesus died for his enemies. He loved them and forgave them. He hung on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. He wept when he saw the city of Jerusalem. So we've got to be cautious and balanced here. When I say, know your enemy, I'm not saying, hey, let's destroy the other political party. Or let's find the people on Facebook who disagree with us and shame them publicly. This is not a call to take up arms in a supposed culture war. Rather, what do we do with our enemies? First and foremost, we, we bless them and pray for them, as First Peter taught us. And then, yes, we seek to persuade them with the gospel and show them the truth in love. Debate, persuasion, teaching people the truth. These are good and helpful and necessary things. But we need to remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.12. Look at this. He said, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our war is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. We're not fighting against our lost neighbors. We're not fighting against the people in Olathe who believe or live differently or vote differently than we do. We are fighting against Satan and his powers. He is the enemy, and he has the world under his sway. He has people blinded and deceived. So lost people don't need our anger and our hatred. They need to hear the gospel. They need the truth and love. They're blind. They're lost and without hope. So knowing our enemy starts with knowing Satan and his strategy. He wants to divide us, to deceive us. He wants to twist the word of God. He wants to cause anger and hatred and fear, and he's very good at it. He's the chief commander of the opposing side. But again, here's that balance. Let's not forget Jude wrote this letter about false teachers who were real people. Satan is behind it. We saw that last week. But Satan uses people to accomplish his work. And so there's a time when we must oppose people who seek to distort the gospel and tear down his church. There's a time to speak out against false teachers and rebuke those who teach a false message. Paul did this quite strongly in Galatians. We just need to make sure that we reserve that label of false teaching for real false teachers. We must be cautious with that label and use it sparingly. We don't want to become the boy who cried wolf or everyone's a heretic except me. Again, not everyone we disagree with is our enemy. So we need to know our enemy. What is Satan's latest mode of attack? What is he currently doing to undermine the gospel and split the church? What is the threat and what level does it rise to? And that knowledge should lead us not to fear, not to hatred, or ungodly anger, but it should lead us to the second part of our battle plan number two, 
train yourself. You guys uh, work out? Are you into fitness and staying in shape? Everybody's looking at me like, mm, don't worry, I struggle too. You know, it's amazing. There's this entire industry out there around personal fitness. Have you seen this? And COVID kind of accelerated it. There's home workout equipment and fitness apps on your phone and fitness protein bars and drinks and food and diets. It's this whole world that makes me tired just thinking about it. But the idea is that we can and should train our bodies to be healthy and strong. And we find the same thing to be true in the Bible spiritually. Once we become believers, there are things we can do to grow our spiritual muscles and become stronger in the faith. That's Jude's point here. He's saying, hey, we've talked about these false teachers, but hey, hey, let's talk about you now. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The central command in these two verses is keep yourselves in the love of God. That's Jude's concern in the whole letter. While the church is under attack, while false teaching abounds, while people are falling away, you, believer, you keep yourself right where you are in God's love. And that's really what the Christian life is. It's, it's keeping. Christian growth happens when we remain or abide. That's the word Jesus used. He said in John 15, verses 4 through 5, he said, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the way. Keep yourselves. Stay. Abide. But hang on. Jude just said in verse 1 that we're kept by God. He's going to see in the verse we look at, the last verse next week, that God keeps us from stumbling. So which is it? Do we keep ourselves or does God keep us? Well, the Bible answers that question with yes. God keeps us while we keep ourselves. It's that mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility working together in some harmonious way. We're kept by God's grace, and yet we must strive to keep ourselves rooted in him. As one author has said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning Keep ourselves in God's love. And then there's three words to explain how we do that. It's the word building, praying, and waiting. Let's take those in turn as we think about training ourselves. First, he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. What is our most holy faith? Well, when Jude uses the word faith, he's not talking about how we typically think of it, like the faith we put in God, but he's talking about the faith. Like he talked about in verse 3, the faith that's handed down once, once for all, delivered to the saints. Faith here is what we believe. It's the, it's the gospel message, and the gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. And that message is what we build ourselves on. So I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it until the cows come home. I don't really know when that is, but it means I'm going to say it a lot. The gospel is not just for lost people. The gospel is for Christians too. We never get over or get past or go beyond what Christ has done. We're always going deeper and deeper into that truth. The gospel is not just the door into which we walk into the Christian life. The gospel is the entire house in which we live. 
So often Christians think what it means to grow as a Christian is to get smarter and get more knowledge in their heads. So we do Bible studies on Revelation and the Minor Prophets. And we get into deep theological debates. I was in a Sunday school teacher meeting one time in another church. And we were talking about the need to really teach the gospel to our people. And one of our teachers has been teaching a long time. She spoke up. She said, in my class, we don't talk about elementary things like the gospel. We're past that. We like to go for the meat. Look, knowledge is important. God wants us to know him deeply. But knowledge does not equate spiritual growth. I have met some folks who have a whole lot of Bible knowledge and not a lot of Jesus. We've got so much knowledge here in the American church, our brain's leaking out our ears. If the stuff you're learning is not making you more like Jesus, then the meat you're eating is rotten. What we need is to better and more fully understand the gospel of Jesus and how the whole Bible is about it and how your whole life should be about it. The gospel speaks to every part of our lives. The way we work, play, rest, our marriage, our kids, our finances. The more we grasp the gospel and take it into our souls, the more we'll love Jesus. And the more we love Jesus, the more we become like him. That's what spiritual growth is. Again, don't mishear, don't mishear me. Knowledge is important. But if our knowledge is not rooted in the gospel, then it's just trivia. It's just do-goodism. Do you know about that do-goodism? For a lot of people, that's the Christian life. It's all about doing good and being good, and I'll be good. Look, doing good didn't get you and me here, and it won't keep us here. We are saved by grace, by the gospel, and that's what we build ourselves on. We cannot forget that. Second, we keep ourselves in God's love by praying in the Spirit. I cannot limit the topic of prayer to a subpoint of a subpoint. <laughs> that is wrong. So this fall, on Sunday nights, I'm going to be teaching a 10-week class on prayer. We're going to get into all of it. And let me tell you, it's going to be so important that you join us for that. Prayer is essential if we want to be the church that God's called us to be. But let me just say this about this verse. How in the world can we expect to keep ourselves in God's love if we don't have a relationship with God? And how in the world can we expect to have a relationship with God if we don't talk to him? Prayer is indispensable for the Christian life. You and me, we can't make it. We can't do it unless we pray. Our charismatic brothers and sisters believe this verse teaches the importance of praying in tongues. That's what they see as praying in the Spirit. And that is a, a whole other topic for another day. I'm not going to open that can of worms. But the Bible teaches that all prayer is praying in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 says this, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So all prayer, every time you pray, it's done with the help of and in the Holy Spirit. So we pray in the Spirit. And third, we keep ourselves in God's love by waiting for mercy. If we want to remain faithful, we need to remain focused on the eternal life that's to come when Jesus comes back. I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to become consumed with this life here and now. And that's what these false teachers were pushing. They were telling people, hey, look, God's grace says we can do whatever we want. Let's live it up. Let's have this pleasure here and now. But in the Christian life, we can't get too comfortable here. We've got to long for and desire and look to the day that Jesus comes back. 
In high school, the grocery store I worked at closed every night at 8 p.m. So whenever I worked a shift, guess what I spent a lot of time doing? Watching that clock. (laughs) Waiting, counting down the hours and minutes until I could go home. I was eager and expectant for my shift to end. Look, that's the kind of waiting we should be doing as believers. Yes, we got a job to do now, and we should be focused on that. But we know our ultimate hope lies not in anything on this planet, but it lies in the hope and the return of Jesus, where we experience the fullness of his mercy and grace, and we get to be with him. So Jude tells the faithful, stay focused. Train yourselves. That's the second part of his plan. Here's the third and last part. Number three, rescue others. Jude is not content with believers just focusing on themselves. In fact, the the entirety of the Bible is not content with us just focusing on ourselves. Scripture was written to groups of people. The New Testament was written to the local church, and we're called to live and understand it in that context today. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. We are not responsible solely for our own spiritual states or even solely for our own family spiritual state. As a part of a local church, we have a responsibility to each other as well. We're a body. We're joined together, and we got to help one another. And that's what Jude's telling us in these last two verses. Look at verses 22 and 23. He says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude addresses three groups of people that were struggling with the false teaching in the church. And each group needed to be approached a little differently. And this gives us a helpful paradigm for how we can deal with people in our lives who are struggling with their faith. First group is simply those who doubt. This was the group of people in the church who were beginning to wrestle with what they heard from the false teachers. They started to wonder if the gospel was really true or they thought, well, maybe these false teachers are on to something. They were simply having doubts. Working in student ministry, I I did that for nine years before this. I, I spent a lot of time counseling students through doubt. They would ask me questions like, how do we know the Bible is really true? How do we know Jesus actually rose from the dead? How do we know our way is really the right way? And I've learned it's not uncommon for Christians especially those of us like me who grew up in church, who came from a Christian family, to go through a season of questioning and doubt. I did. Just a few weeks ago, I met with a former student who's now in college, and he's really struggling with doubt. He was sharing with me his questions and struggles. So here's what I did. I got out a podium and a whiteboard, and I just lectured him for hours, and it fixed everything. Is that what I did? No. I did my best to have mercy. I did that by listening, understanding, caring. I shared some of my experience. I answered some of his questions. I gave him some encouragement. I prayed for him. Look, those struggling with doubt don't need our judgment or our rebuke. They need our mercy. The second group is those who are in the fire. This was the group of people in the church who were being influenced by the false teachers. They weren't just doubting. They were starting to believe it. That word fire, it speaks to eternal judgment, what we call hell. And that's the road these people were on if they denied the true gospel and embraced a false one. So Jude tells us what this group really needs is to be snatched out of the fire. 
They need to be rescued from the road to hell. And, and this tells us two things. For one, it tells us these people are in serious danger. But secondly, it tells us it's not too late. They can still be snatched out. What does this look like in real life? What would we, how would we do this? Well, a lot of it depends on proximity. A relationship is important. This is not arguing with strangers online. This is not shaming and fighting people we don't know. It's just common sense. People will listen to someone they trust. we got to earn the right to speak into someone's life through a relationship. And then we can speak. If a close friend or family member is in this category, this is going to entail a difficult but important conversation. Some of you have been there. Lovingly and privately sharing the truth of the gospel and calling them to turn back. This is the pattern we see in Matthew 18 where Jesus shows how to confront a fellow believer. It starts one-on-one in private. If they refuse to listen, then it involves bringing two or three others along with you. And things continue to build from there, but this is what it means to snatch people out of the fire. The third and last group he addresses is in the most dire situation. This was the group who had fully embraced the false teaching and had joined them in their sinful lifestyles. They were wearing garments stained by the flesh. This is Old Testament language that speaks of undergarments being soiled. Their sin had covered them and they were living in it. To this group were called to show mercy, but with fear. So again, we have mercy and compassion, but what's this about fear? Well, this is a fear of falling into their sin. Whenever we help others, especially those who have fallen deeply into sin, we need to remember that we're sinners too. We are not above their struggle, and we need to be on guard that we don't fall into the same hole that they're in. And then he says we need to hate the stained garment. Jude doesn't say we should hate these people. We hate the sin and the false teaching that has infected them, but we never give up on people. There's a perfect illustration of this passage in a story from World War II. A man by the name of Desmond Doss, he signed up to be a medic in the army. He believed in the cause of the war, but as a Seventh-day Adventist, he made a vow not to kill. The army was not very fond of Doss because of this. His commanding officer repeatedly tried to get him transferred because he didn't see any use for him. But that all changed in the battle at Okinawa. Doss went into the battle without a weapon. Instead, he spent the entire day crawling on the ground from wounded soldier to wounded soldier. And when he would find someone, he would drag them to the edge of what they called Hacksaw Ridge. He would tie a rope around their bodies and he would lower them down to the medics below. And one day, he saved the lives of 75 soldiers, including his commanding officer. Looking back on that day, I saw a quote. Doss said this. He said, I was praying the whole time. I just kept praying, Lord, please help me get one more. That's the calling of the Christian life. We're under attack by an enemy who wants to devour us. So we have to train ourselves and rescue others. We have to pray, Lord, please help me get one more. 
One more person who can come to know Christ. One more person who we can snatch out of the fire. One more person that we can reach and train and send for the nations. One more. Just one more. That's the battle plan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.